Welcome to Drink and Graze Variety Show. Welcome back. Well, this episode we'll continue the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring series, as well as an additional reading that we will be a surprise. So sit back, relax, and of course we'll add some music. Enjoy this show. A long expected party. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11th-1st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had bought back, brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At ninety, he was much the same as at fifty. At ninety-nine, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. But so far, trouble had not come, and as Mr. Baggins was generous with his money, most people were willing to forgive him his oddities as his good fortune, or and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, the Sackville Bagginses, and he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families, but he had not close friends, or he had no close friends, until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favorite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was 99, he adopted Frodo as his heir and brought him to live at Bag End, and the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday. Now that was a surprise. September 22nd. You had better come and live here, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo one day, and then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together. At that time, Frodo was still in his tweens, and the hobbits called the irresponsible twenties between childhood and coming of age at 33. Twelve more years passed. Each year, the Bagginses had given very lively combined birthday parties at Bag End, but now it was understood that something quite exceptional was being planned for that autumn. Bilbo was going to be 111, a rather curious number, and a very respectable age for a hobbit. The old Tolkien himself had only reached 130. 
Frodo was going to be 33, an important number, the date of his coming of age. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater, and rumor of the coming event traveled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mr. Bilbo Baggins became once again the chief topic of conversation, and the older folks suddenly found their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than old Ham Gamgee, commonly known as the Gaffer. He held forth at the Ivy Bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for forty years and had helped old Hallman in the same job before that. Now that he was himself growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried on by his younger son, Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself in number three Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken, gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared, with perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite to him, calling him Master Hampest, and consulting him consistently or constantly upon the growing of vegetables. In the matter of roots, especially potatoes, the gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all in the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him? asked old Noakes of Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. It beats me why any Baggins of Hobbiton should go looking for a wife away there in Buckland, where folks are so queer. And no wonder they're queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbor. If they live on the wrong side of the Brandywine River and right again the old forest, that's a dark, bad place if half the tales be true. You're right, Dad, said the gaffer. Not that the brandy bucks of Buckland live in the old forest, but they're a queer breed, seemingly. They fool about with boats and on that big river, and that isn't natural. Small wonder that trouble came of it, I say. But be that it is May, Mr. Frodo is a nice young hobbit, as you could wish to meet. Very much like Mr. Bilbo, and in more than looks... After all, his father was a Baggins. A decent, respectable hobbit was Mr. Drogo Baggins. There was never much to tell of him till he was drowned. Drowned, said several voices. They had heard this and other darker rumors before, of course, but hobbits have a passion for family history, and they were ready to hear it again. Well, so they say, said the gaffer. You see, Mr. Drogo, he married poor Miss... Primella Brandybuck. She was our Mr. Bilbo's, Bilbo's first cousin on the mother's side, her mother being the youngest of the old Took's daughters, and Mr. Drogo was his second cousin, so Mr. Frodo is his first and second cousin, once removed, either way, as the saying is, if you follow me. And Mr. Drogo was staying at Brandy Hall with his father-in-law, old Mr. 
Gorbadoc, as he often did after his marriage, him being partial to his victuals, and old Gorbadoc keeping a mighty generous table. And he went out boating on the Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned, and poor Mr. Frodo, only a child, and all. I've heard they went on the water after dinner in the mountain moonlight, said old Noakes, and it was Drogo's weight as sunk the boat. And I heard she pushed him in, and he pulled her in after him, said Sandyman, the hobbit and miller. You shouldn't listen to all of you, you hear, Sandyman, said the gaffer. Who did not much like the miller? There isn't no call to go talking or pushing and pulling. Boats are quite tricky enough for those that sit still without looking further for the cause of trouble. Anyway... There was this Mr. Frodo left, an orphan, and stranded, as you might say, among those queer bucklanders, being brought up anyhow in Brandy Hall, a regular warren by all accounts. Old Master Gobodok never had fewer than a couple of hundred relations in the place. Mr. Bilbo never did a kinder deed than when he brought the lad back to live among decent folk. But I reckon it was a nasty shock for those Sackenville Bagginses. They thought they were going to get back in, that time when he went off and was thought to be dead. And then he comes back and orders him off, and he goes on living and living and never looking a day older. Bless him. And suddenly he produces an heir and has all the papers made out proper. The Sackville Bagginses won't never see the inside of Baggin now, or it is to be hoped not. There's a tidy bit of money tucked away up there. I hear tell, said a stranger, a visitor on business from Michael Delving in the West Farthing. All the top of your hill is full of tunnels packed with chests of gold and silver and jewels by what I've heard. Then you've heard more than I can speak to, answered the gaffer. I know nothing about jewels. Mr. Bilbo is free with his money, and there seems no lack of it, but I know of no tunnel making. I saw Mr. Bilbo when he came back, a matter of sixty years ago, when I was a lad. I had not long come apprentice to old Holman, him being my dad's cousin, but he had me up at Bag End helping him to keep folks from, from trampling and trespassing all over the garden while the sale was on. And in the middle of it all, Mr. Bilbo comes up the hill with a pony and some mighty big bags and a couple of chests. I don't doubt they were mostly full of treasure. He had picked up on in foreign parts where there be mountains of gold, they say, but there wasn't enough to fill... Up, there wasn't enough mountains of gold, they say, but there wasn't <clears throat> enough to fill tunnels. But my lad Sam will know more about that. He's in and out of Bag End, crazy about stories of the old days he is, and he listens to all Mr. Bilbo's tales. Mr. Bilbo has learned him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope no harm will come of it. 
Elves and dragons, I say to him. Cabbages and potatoes are better for me and you. Don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters, or you'll land in trouble and look too big for you. I says to him, and I might say it to others, he added with a look at the stranger and the miller. But the gaffer did not convince his audience. The legend of Bilbo's wealth was now too firmly fixed in the minds of the younger generation of hobbits. Ah, but he has likely enough been adding to what he brought at first, argued the miller, voicing common opinion. He's often away from home. And look at the outlandish folk that visit him. Dwarves coming at night and that old wandering conjurer, Gandalf and all. You can say what you like, Gaffer, but Big Bag End's a queer place, and its folk are queerer. And you can say what you like about what you know no more of than you do of boating, Mr. Sandyman retorted the Gaffer, disliking the miller even more than usual. If that's being queer, then we could do with a bit more queerness in these parts. There's some not far away that wouldn't offer a pint of beer to a friend if they lived in a hole with golden walls, but they do things proper at Bag End. Our Sam says that everyone's going to be invited to the party and there's going to be presents. Mark you, presents for all, this very month as it is. That very month was September, and as fine as you could ask, a day or two later, a rumor, probably started by the knowledgeable Sam, was spread about that there was going to be fireworks. Fireworks, what is more, such as had not been seen in the Shire for nigh on a century, not indeed since the old Took died. Days passed, and the day drew nearer. An odd-looking wagon laden with old, odd-looking packages rolled into Hobbiton one evening and toiled up the hill to Bag End. The startled hobbits peered out of lamp-lit doors to gape at it. It was driven by outlandish folks singing strange songs, dwarves with long beards and deep hoods. A few of them remained at Bag End. At the end of the second week in September, a cart came in through Bywater from the direction of the Brandywine Bridge in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat and a long gray cloak and a silver scarf. He had a long white beard and bushy eyebrows that stuck out beyond the brim of his hat. Small hobbit children ran after the cart, although all through Hobbiton and right up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks. As they rightly guessed, at Bilbo's front door, the old man began to unload. There were great bundles of fireworks of all sorts and shapes, each labeled with a large red G and the elf rune. That was Gandalf's mark, of course, and the old man was Gandalf the wizard, whose fame in the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smokes, and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about him. To them, he was just one of the attractions at the party. They shouted, and the old man smiled. They knew him by sight, though he only appeared in Hobbiton occasionally and never stopped long. But neither did they nor any but the oldest of their elders had seen one of his firework displays. They now belonged to the legendary past. 
When the old man, helped by Bilbo and some dwarves, had finished unloading, Bilbo gave a few pennies away, but not a single squib or cracker was forthcoming, to the disappointment of the onlookers. Run away now, said Gandalf. You will get plenty when the time comes. Then he disappeared inside with Bilbo, and the door was shut. The young hobbits stared at the door in vain for a while, and then made off, feeling that the day of the party would never come. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room, looking out west onto the garden. The late late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden, snapdragons and sunflowers, and nasturians trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the round windows. How bright your garden looks, said Gandalf. Yes, said Bilbo. I'm very fond indeed of it, and all of the dear old shire, but I think I need a holiday. You mean to go on with your plan, then? I do. I made up my mind months ago, and I haven't changed it. Very well. It is no good saying any more. Stick to your plan, you ho- your whole plan, mind, and I hope it will turn out for the best for you and for all of us. I hope so. Anyway, I mean to enjoy myself on Thursday and have my little joke. Who will laugh, I wonder, said Gandalf, shaking his head. We shall see, said Bilbo. The next day, more carts rolled up the hill and still more carts. There might have been more grumbling about dealing locally, but that very weak orders began to pour out of Bag End. For every kind of provision, commodity, or luxury that could be obtained in Hobbiton, or by water, or anywhere in the neighborhood, people became enthusiastic, and they began to tick off the days in the calendar, and they watched eagerly for the postman, hoping for invitations. Before long, the invitations began pouring out, and the Hobbiton post office was blocked, and the Bywater post office was snowed under, and voluntary assistant postmen were called for. There was a constant stream of them going up the hill, carrying hundreds of polite variations on, Thank you, I shall certainly come. A notice appeared on the gate at Back Inn, No admittance except on party business. Even those who had or pretended to have party business was seldom allowed inside. Bilbo was busy writing invitations, ticking off answers, packing up presents, and making some private preparations of his own. From the time of Gandalf's arrival, he remained hidden from view. One morning, the hobbits woke to find the large south of Bilbo's front door covered with ropes and poles for tents and pavilions. A special entrance was cut into the bank, leading to the road, and wide steps and a large white gate were built there. The three hobbit families of Bagshot Row adjoining the field were intensely interested and generally envied. Old gaffer Gamgee stopped even pretending to work in his garden. The tents began to go up. There was a specialty large pavilion so big that the tree that grew in the field was right inside it and stood proudly near one end at the head of the chief table. Lanterns were hung on all its branches. More promising still to the hobbit's mind, an enormous open-air kitchen was erected 
uh, in the north corner of the field, a drought of cooks from every inn and eating house from miles around arrived to supplement the dwarves and other odd folk that were quartered at Bag Inn. Excitement rose to its height. Then the weather clouded over. That was a Wednesday, the eve of the party. Anxiety was intense. Then Thursday, September the 22nd, actually dawned. The sun got up, the clouds vanished, flags were unfurled, and the fun began. Bill Bobaggins called it a party, but it was really a variety of entertainments rolled into one. Practically everybody living near was invited. A very few were overlooked by accident, but as they turned up all the same, that did not matter. Many people from other parts of the Shire were also asked, and there were even a few from outside of the borders. Bilbo met the guests and additions at the new White Gate in person. He gave away presents to all and sundry, the latter were those who went out again by a back way and came in again by the gate. Hobbits give presents to other people on their own birthdays, not very expensive ones, as other people are rule and not so lavishly as on this occasion, but it was not a bad system. Actually, in Hobbiton and Bywater, every day in the year it was somebody's birthday, so that every hobbit in those parts had a fair chance of at least one present at least once a week, but they never got tired of them. On this occasion, the presents were unusually good. The hobbit children were so excited that for a while they almost forgot about eating, all beautiful and some obviously magical. Those were toys that, like of which they had not ever seen. Many of them had indeed been ordered a year before and had come all the way from the mountain and from dale and were of real dwarf make. When every guest had been welcomed and was finally inside the gate, there were songs, dances, music, games, and of course, food and drink. There were three official meals, lunch, tea, and dinner or supper. But lunch and tea were marked chiefly by the fact that at those times all the guests were sitting down and eating together. At other times there were merely lots of people eating and drinking continuously from Elvinses until 6.30. Elvinses until 6.30 when the fireworks started. The fireworks were by Gandalf. They were not only brought by him, but designed and made by him, and the special effects set pieces and flights of rockets were let off by him. But there was also a generous distribution of squibs, crackers, wrappers, sparklers, torches, dwarf scandals, elf fountains, goblin barkers, and thunderclaps. They were all superb. The art of Gandalf improved with age. There were rockets like a flight of scintillating birds singing with sweet voices. There were green trees with trunks of dark smoke. Their leaves opened like a whole spring unfolding in a moment, and their shining branches dropped glowing flowers down upon the astonished hobbits, disappearing with a sweet scent just before they touched their upturned faces. There were fountains of butterflies that flew glittering 
into the trees. There were pillars of colored fires that rose and turned into eagles, or sailing ships or a phalanx of flying swans. There was a red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain. There was a forest of silver spears that sprang suddenly into the air with a yell like an embattled army and came down again into the water with a hiss like a hundred hot snakes. And there was also one last surprise in honor of Bilbo, and it startled the hobbits exceedingly as Gandalf intended. The lights went out. A great smoke went up. It shaped itself like a mountain seen in the distance and began to glow at the summit. It sprouted green and scarlet flames. Out flew a red golden dragon, not life-size, but terribly life-like, Fire came from his jaws. His eyes glared down. There was a roar, and he whizzed three times over the heads of the crowd. They all ducked, and many fell flat on their faces. The dragon passed like an express train, turned a somersault, and burst over bywater with a deafening explosion. That is a signal for supper, said Bilbo. The pain and alarm vanished at once, and the prostrate... Hobbits leaped onto their feet. There was a splendid supper for everyone, for everyone, that is, except those invited to the special family dinner party. This was held in the great pavilion with the tree. The invitations were limited to twelve dozen, a number also called by the hobbits one gross, though the word was not considered proper to use of people, and the guests were selected from all the families to which Bilbo and Frodo were related, with the addition of a few special unrelated friends such as Gandalf. Many young hobbits were included and present by parental permission, for hobbits were um, easygoing with their children in the matter of sitting up late especially when there was a chance of getting them a free meal. Bringing up young hobbits took a lot of provender. There were many bagginses and boffins, and also many toques and brandy bucks. There were various grubs, relations of Bilbo Baggins' grandmother, and various chubs, connections of his two grandfather, and a selection of barouses, Bulgars, brace girdles, brock houses, good bodies, horn blowers, and proudfoots. Some of these were only very distantly connected with Bilbo, and some of them had hardly ever been in the Hobbiton before, as they lived in the remote corners of the Shire. The Sackville Bagginses were not forgotten. Otho and his wife, Lobelia, was present. They disliked Bilbo and detested Frodo, but so magnificent was the invitation card written in gold ink that they had felt it was impossible to refuse. Besides, their cousin Bilbo had been specializing in food for many years, and his table had a high reputation. All the 144 guests expected a pleasant feast, though they rather dreaded the after-dinner speech of their hosts, an inevitable item. He was liable to drag in bits of what he called poetry, and sometimes, after a glass or two, would allude to the absurd adventures of his mysterious journey. 
The guests were not disappointed. They had a very pleasant feast. In fact, an engrossing entertainment, rich, abundant, varied, and prolonged. The purchase of provisions fell almost to nothing throughout the district in the ensuing weeks. But as Bilbo's catering had depleted the stocks of most stores, cellars, and warehouses for miles around, that did not matter much. After the feast, more or less, came the speech. Most of the company were, however, now in tolerant moods. At that delightful stage, which they called filling up the corners, they were sipping their favorite drinks and nibbling at their favorite dainties, and their fears were forgotten. They were prepared to listen to anything and to cheer at every full stop. My dear people, began Bilbo, rising in his place. Hear, 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 they shouted, and kept on repeating it in chorus, seeming reluctant to follow their own advice. Bilbo left his place and went and stood on a chair under the illuminated tree. The lights of the lanterns fell on his beaming face. The golden buttons shone on his embroidered silk waistcoat. They could all see him standing, waving one hand in the air. The other was in his trouser pocket. My dear Bagginses and Boffins, he began again, and my dear Tooks and Brandybucks and Grubs and Chubs and Browses and Hornblowers and Bulgers, Brace Griddle Girdles, Good Bodies, Brockhouses, and Proud Foots. Proud Feet! I remember that in the movie shouted an elderly hobbit from the back of the pavilion. His name, of course, was Proudfoot, and well-merited. His feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Proudfoot's repeated Bilbo. Also, my good Sackville Bagginses that I welcome back at last to Bag End. Today is my 111th birthday. I am 111 today. Hooray, hooray, many happy returns, they shouted, and they hammered joyously on the tables. Bilbo was doing splendidly. This was the sort of stuff they liked, short and obvious. I hope you are all enjoying yourselves as much as I am. Deafening cheers, cries of yes and no, noises of trumpets and horns, pipes and flutes and other musical instruments. There were, as has been said, many young hobbits present. Hundreds of musical crackers had been pulled. Most of them bore the mark Dale on them, which did not convey much to most of the hobbits, but they all agreed they may, they were marvelous crackers. They contained instruments, small but of perfect make and enchanting tones. Indeed, in one corner, some of the young Tooks and Brandybucks, supposing Uncle Bilbo to have finished, since he had plainly said all that was necessary, now got up an impromptu orchestra and began a merry dance tune. Master Everhart took in his Miss Melot Brandybuck got on a table and with bells in their hands began to dance the sprinkle ring, a pretty dance, but rather vigorous. But Bilbo had not finished. Seizing a horn from a youngster nearby, he blew three loud hoots. The noise subsided. I shall not keep you long, he cried. Cheers from all the assembly. I've called you all together for a purpose. Something in the way that he said this made an impression. There was almost silence, and one or two of the toots pricked up their ears. 
indeed for three purposes. First of all, I have to tell you that I am immensely fond of you all, and that 11 years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. Tremendous outbursts of approval. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. This was unexpected and rather difficult. There was some scattered clapping, but most of them were trying to work it out and see if it came to a compliment. Secondly, to celebrate my birthday, cheers again, I should say, our birthday, for it is, of course, also the birthday of my heir and nephew Frodo. He comes of age and into his inheritance today. Some perfunctory clapping by the elders and some loud shouts of Frodo, Frodo, jolly old Frodo, from the juniors. The Sackville Bagginses scowled and wondered what was meant by coming into his inheritance. Together we score 144. Your numbers were chosen to fit this remarkable total. One gross, if I may use the expression, no cheers. This was ridiculous. Many of his guests, and especially the Sackville Bagginses, were insulted, feeling sure they had only been asked to fill up the required number by goods on a package. One gross indeed, vulgar expression. It is also, if I may, be allowed to refer to ancient history. The anniversary of my arrival by barrel at Asgarth and the Long Lake, though the fact that it was my birthday slipped my memory on that occasion. I was only 51 then, and birthdays did not seem important. The banquet was very splendid, however, though I had a bad cold at the time. I remember and could only say, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I now repeat it more correctly. Thank you very much for coming to my little party. Obstinate silence. They all feared that a song or some poetry was now imminent, and they were getting bored. Why couldn't he stop talking and let them drink his health? But Bilbo did not sing or recite. He paused for a moment. Thirdly and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement. He spoke this last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who could still. I regret to announce that though, as I said, eleven-to-one years is far too short of a time to spend among you, this is the end. I am going. I am leaving now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light, and the guests all blinked. When they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. One hundred and forty-four flabbergasted hobbits sat back speechless. Old Odo Proudfoot removed his feet from the table and stamped. Then there was a dead silence until suddenly, after several deep breaths, every Baggins, Boffin, Took, Brandybuck, Grub, Chubb, Burrows, Bulger, Bracegirdle, Brockhouse, Goodbody, Hornblower, and Proudfoot began to talk at once. It was generally agreed that the joke was in very bad taste, and more food and drink was needed to cure the guest of shock and annoyance. He's mad. I always said so, said was probably the most popular comment. Even the Tooks, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behavior was absurd. For the moment, most of them took it for granted that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. But old Rory Brandybuck was not so sure. Neither age nor an enormous dinner had clouded his wits, 
And he said to his daughter-in-law, Esmeralda, There's something fishy in this, my dear. I believe that Mad Baggins is off again. Silly old fool. But why worry? He hasn't taken the, the vittles with him. He called Lolly to Frodo and sent send the wine around again. Frodo was the only one present who had said nothing. For some time he had sat silent beside Bilbo's empty chair and ignored all remarks and questions. He had enjoyed the joke, of course, even though he had been in the know. He had difficulty in keeping from laughter at the indignant surprise of the guests, but at the same time he felt deeply troubled. He realized suddenly that he loved the old hobbit dearly. Most of the guests went on eating and drinking and discussing Bilbo Baggins' oddities, past and present, but the Sackville Bagginses had already departed in wrath. Frodo did not want to have any more to do with the party. He gave orders for more wine to be served. Then he got up and drained his own glass silently to the health of Bilbo and flipped out of the pavilion. Well, that was a, a chapter that I'm not finished yet, but there's more. So we're going to take a break from that, and we're going to do another chapter and some music of a different book. Um, it's interesting to, to see some of the details that were not in the movie, but then you make the connection that's in the movie. Some of the scenes, like, for example, you know, where Bilbo names all of the relatives and all the friends and guests. And then the, <laughs> I laughed at the point about proud foot, and he goes, proud feet. I remember that in the movie. So it's kind of cool to see, you know, the connection with the movie. and But then there's more and more different details where you know, some of the things were not shared. So it's always interesting, and I, it brings about the question of whether or not, you know, should you read the book first, or should you see the movie first, then read the book? So that's a, an answer. What do you guys think? What do you, should, we, should we read the movie first, to see the movie first, or should we read the book first? All right, sit back, relax, and get some music going.
Well, that was one of the tracks, Come and Relax, that I came up with. So now it's time to go with a different genre, a different story. So sit back and relax. Enjoy the reading. This next book, Chapter 3 of Dark Lands Requiem. It's the titled The Comforting Room. The intoxicating aroma of cheeseburgers and french fries wafted out from behind the door. They approached, making Webb appreciate how famished he really was. When his uncle opened the door to the room, Webb stepped forward in anticipation only to have his uncle's arm reach out to him to stop. Don't get too caught up on the hows and the whys, Webb. He cautioned, for now, just try and accept what you see. You'll make sense of it later. He then moved his arm and let the boy pass. Webb turned a critical eye towards his uncle, but the moment he stepped into the room, lured in by the promising scent of fast food, all of his confusion and apprehension evaporated. All that remained was a strange sense of familiarity, as if he had known this place all his life. The chamber was oval in shape, with wainscotted walls lined by dark acacia shelves that were stacked full of books, boxes of trinkets, and other miscellany that Webb couldn't even begin to identify. On the other side of him were tables, each of the same dark acacia wood as the shelves. The one to his right was set up as a work desk, and the other was jury-rigged to serve as a dinner table, upon which sat a huge porcelain plate spilling over the spilling over with french fries and a large juicy double cheeseburger mm. webb's stomach happily grumbled its approval before he could satiate his hunger however his attention was drawn to a chest-high pedestal set in the very center of the room atop the elegant frame was a small brightly glowing terrarium in which an ashen gray pick lock box was encased webb called mike cutting his nephew's gaze short eat. Webb noted, nodded, and moved to the makeshift dinner table and pulled out one of four bountiful leather chairs and sat down, the plush leather comfortably absorbing his weight. He quickly pulled the mountainous plate of food towards him and took a huge bite out of the cheeseburger. The meats and cheese seemed to melt in his mouth. He quickly scarfed down two more bites before setting the burger down and plowing into the crispy french fries, their saltiness attacking his taste buds and making him suddenly very thirsty. He was about to ask for a drink when a new voice rang from around the corner. I suppose you would like a large Coke, asked an older man. He strode up to Webb smoothly and confidently, a large crystal glass held firmly in his hand. The waistcoat and slacks he wore were perfectly starched and crisp with not a stray wrinkle in sight. Similarly, his face, lined with age and framed by a closely cropped salt and pepper beard, was possessed of the finest, most elegant features. Trailing him was a round, younger, but larger man who was all smiles. In fact, he seemed to beam with the most genuine smile Webb had ever seen. He, too, held something in his hand, a smallish brown teddy bear. The old gentleman set the, fuzz, the fizzy glass down in front of Webb and then offered his hand. My name is Matthias. 
Webb shook the extended hand without leaving his seat, and impropriety which his mother would have readily chastised him for were she present. I see you obviously recognize your uncle, stated Matthias, as he walked around the table and took the seat directly opposite Webb. And the gentleman taking the seat beside me is Iggy, he continued. The quiet young man smiled at Webb with bright eyes and nodded without uttering a word. Webb nodded back awkwardly. You have a lot of questions, said Matthias. His voice was a soothing one and somewhat reminiscent of sweet toffee clicking against the teeth. Luckily, we have a lot of answers. To be fair, I shall let you decide where to begin. Webb wasted no time. My uncle Mike is dead. He died a few years ago. So who's this? he asked, hooking a thumb in Mike's direction. Oh, that is your uncle, replied Matthias, matter-of-factly. Then, he's not dead? Webb hesitantly asked. No, he's dead, in the same way as we all are, replied Matthias. As we all are, Webb responded incredulously. You always give them the floor, Matthias, and it always causes problems, Michael mumbled under his breath. Courtesy dictates that we let our guests take the path that is most comfortable with first, Michael. Yeah, but now he's all befuddled. Look at him, Matthias, he replied, watching his nephew's eyes blink and wander around nervously. Well, everyone's explanation must start somewhere, even if it is difficult to comprehend at first, Matthias argued. Uh, Why don't you just explain it the best way you can, Matthias? Webb interrupted. True, the situation was strange and polarizing, but he actually felt much more comfortable than his body language suggested. Whether it was Matthias' grandfatherly voice or his kind, wizened face, Webb did not know, but there was something about him that made Webb trust him unquestionably. Matthias nodded. Let's start at the beginning, then. That's always best, he smiled, slowly rubbing his well-manicured beard. Billions of years ago, the point we record as infinity plus one second, a grand explosion eviscerated the space that we now call the universe, creating worlds and seeding the elements necessary for the propagation of life. And since that point, there has always been the cycle of life and death, or at least that is what you have been taught, yes? Yeah, I guess, Webb responded hesitantly. What if I were to tell you that there exists a realm between life and death, a place not yet recorded or referenced in any theological, mythical, mythological or historical archive? Okay, Webb replied as his mind tried to wrap itself around the concept. His focus was so intense that he didn't even notice Gustafsson jump up on the table and begin licking his french fries. The place I am describing to you is the Darklands, and it is the place in which you now reside. The Darklands, a realm created at time's inception, yet existing outside of time itself. Fascinating, yes? Webb deflated into his chair. Matthias' practice speech was not offering any solace to the boy's addled mind. I am so lost, he slurred. Looking distractedly at his plate, which was now empty thanks to Gustafsson. Dead? Alive? I just want an answer, Webb mumbled half-heartedly. I think I am taking it all very well, though, if I am really dead. 
It is the room, not that you do not have good composure in and your, of yourself, chuckled Matthias. Webb glanced up from where he slouched. What's special about this room? Aside from being my room, Matthias began with a playful smile. It is it has a very pacifying effect on those who enter here. That is why we have these little sessions here and not in the open with the others. Webb's heart skipped to beat others. There are others? How many? Hundreds. You and Sundown are the latest additions to our family. Your sister is fine. Sundown, Webb jumped up from the table. He had somehow forgotten about her until this very moment. She was dead, too? Again, your sister's okay, reassured Matthias, signaling for Webb to sit back down. You will see her very soon, but we must get through your counseling first. Webb uneasily complied and sat back down restlessly. Now that you've had a moment to catch your breath, let's pick up from where we left off. I believe you were wondering about whether you were alive or dead. Well, putting two and two together... Doesn't always equal four, Webb, interrupted Matthias. In fact, in the Darklands, you'll find that more often than not, it equals five, six, or sometimes even seven. That doesn't help me at all. I am still confused, surrendered Webb. Indeed you are, but I believe it will become much clearer to you momentarily. First, make no mistake, in your former world, the living world, you are most certainly dead. You had to physically die there in order to arrive here. That is the only path to the Darklands. So I did die? Webb responded nauseously. You died a physical death, nothing more. The fact that we are sitting here conversing means that you are still very much alive, albeit in a different sense than you are used to, and that is very important. Webb shook his head. Well, that's great, but I need to get back to my parents. They must be worried sick about me and my sister. There must be a way back. Just as you can get here, you can most certainly leave. You mean I can go back home, Webb asked, hopefully? If that is the way of things, yes. There are four paths out of the Darklands, and two of them will get you home, as you so put it. And the other two? The other two will not, Matthias responded curtly. Reincarnation is perhaps the easiest of the four paths to understand. Whoa, Webb interrupted. Reincarnation is for real? Then reconsidering what was going on around him already, he felt a little silly about his outburst. Oh, it is a very real. Reincarnation is the meddling of one's soul, one's essence, to a new body, a new vessel, to accomplish what the old vessel could not. You mean people can come back as somebody else to finish what they started? A very simple summary, but an accurate enough one at that, smiled Matthias. So all of those people claiming they were Amelia Earhart in their past life were telling the truth? asked Webb, half-jokingly. I'm afraid Mrs. Earnhardt, Earhart was never here in the Darklands to begin with, so those people you speak of were either lying or misguided, quipped Matthias. Nevertheless, we have had many souls leave here to be reincarnated into the, into the living world, so I can just choose to be reborn? Uh, in due time, you will have all of your answers. For now, however, it is best that we follow the current flow of our discussion. Webb didn't appreciate the evasiveness, but he nodded patiently just the same. 
The second path in the Darklands, resurrection, is a little more mystifying. This is where the concept of time in the Darklands begins to apply. You said the Darklands is outside of time, or something like that, replied Webb. But do you understand what being outside of the time really means? Matthias asked with a wry grin. Webb shrugged. I don't know. What day is it? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's around February 20th. To you, yes, but your uncle doesn't recall the weeks, months, or years you experienced after he died at all. We have others here whose final days were spent in various times in the past, a bitter cold December in 1941, a blistering summer in 1864, autumn harvest season in 1760, and so on. But regardless of the times from their perspective, lives in the other world, these souls each have the potential to be resurrected back into the living world and resume their lives exactly where they left off. That's, that's impossible, retorted Webb. Is it really? How many near-death experiences do you recall reading about or hearing about during your lifetime? How many people resuscitated after being dead for several minutes? Weren't they revived? Weren't they resurrected? Challenged Matthias. That's different. Those people were resuscitated. They weren't dead. Even if you wanted to put it that way, they were dead for only a few minutes and then came back. They weren't even dead for several hours, much less several years or centuries, Webb stammered out. Are you so certain, asked Matthias. Webb looked around the table, seeing his uncle and Iggy watching him intently, before meekly replying, no. And that is the definition of timeless realm. You could very well go back and resume your life right where you left it, just as someone who died in 1864 could go back and resume theirs. Here, time is nothing more than a seamless book of infinite pages which can be flipped to and fro. Every second of every lifetime is accessible from the Darklands. So I could go back home, and it would be as if I never left. Yes, Matthias smiled, and no one would be the wiser. That is the way of resurrection. Webb glanced briefly over at his uncle and then back to Matthias. Why is there both reincarnation and resurrection then? Resurrection seems better. Why is a word that you need to learn to use a lot less in this realm, Webb, but it's more a practical matter of how one died. If the physical death was so violent and terrible that the body was literally rendered uninhabitable, then there is nothing for the essence or soul to return to. You cannot resurrect at that point. I guess that makes sense, Webb said uneasily, feeling a little sick at the thought and wondering what his own body looked like right now. Does anyone ever recall being here? I mean, those who go back. Usually, no. If anything, it's the same tired tale of bright lights and shadowy visages beckoning them onward. Nothing definitive. In that rare event when someone crosses into the Darklands more than once, more than once? It happens, Matthias said and nodded. Sometimes the soul loses its way when it's returned to the living world and must return to the Darklands to be put back on course. Sometimes the Darklands calls them back again. 
Either way, these few souls do occasionally have more of a recollection than others. They might have a vague remembrance from a past life or some memory burned into them from the dark lands. But again, these instances are few and far between. Besides, not everyone travels the path of resurrection or reincarnation. In fact, a fair majority do not. Why? For most, there is no pressing reason for them to return to the living world. It is time for them to move along to the next level. What is the next level? asked Webb. The third of the four paths. There are various names that you could call it if you wanted to get the general idea of it. Heaven is a popular one, but there are many others. And the fourth path, does it also take you to the next level? Pressed Webb, intrigued. It was as if a candle had been snuffed out in the otherwise lightless room. Matthias's demeanor turned very grave. His dear voice, heavy and sad, said, No, Webb, the fourth path out of the dark lands is the most absolute. It is called the true death. But we just discussed about already being dead. How can we die again? asked Webb. The words die and dead, stinging a little as he said them, I said you suffered a physical death, Webb, nothing more. What is here now in the Darklands is what some call the soul. I like to think of it as a memory or echo of your physical self, but when you experience the true death, even your soul dies. There is nothing left. Complete eradication. Nothing is left, Webb asked. Nothing more than a memory cube in Remembrance Hall, if you're lucky. Michael whispered solemnly from the background. Matthias shot him a reproachful look, but quickly hid his displeasure when he saw that Webb hadn't registered the comment. I don't feel like an echo, Webb said, almost defensively. Nor do you look like an echo, Matthias smiled. If you were to catch your reflection in a mirror, you would see yourself as you last remembered, right down to your favorite clothes. Webb briefly looked himself over. He hadn't noticed it before, but he was wearing his favorite pair of Levi's, a white t-shirt that had always felt just right on him, a pair of white Levi cross trainers, and most peculiarly, his blue leather jacket. The jacket had his varsity football letter proudly displayed on the left side and had been his favorite jacket to date, at least until Mary Ellen Mulfat, a spiteful ex-girlfriend, had taken and burned it in the effigy. But here it was resting comfortably on his person without a single sting in sight. Singe in sight. Webb looked back up at Matthias in my room. Here it is it a memory? Matthias nodded. Everyone in Glorian. Glorian interrupted Webb. Glorian is the name of this castle, our fortress within which we safely dwell. Everyone here has their own room, and each room is reflect a reflection of where they often felt most comfortable in the living world. Webb accepted the answer and then looked at his empty plate and glass. 
if we're all just echoes, then why do we need to sleep or eat? The soul needs to be fed and nurtured, just as the body does. Food and sleep are basic representations of these necessities. In reality, what your soul is actually partaking in is much more profound a thing than you conscious than your conscious mind could easily understand. Therefore, these illusions are used in proxy to facilitate it. And the food responded Webb with, with a smirk. I'm guessing it's not always cheeseburgers and french fries then. It is whatever you want from wherever you want. Matthias answered, well, I'm the big cat lying beside the table, licking its lips. I believe you noticed that the cheeseburger and fries you just devoured, with Gustafsson's aid, tasted very much like the fare, the fare you once relished at Lou's back in your hometown. Michael has often told me about the times that you all shared there previously. Webb's thoughts drifted slightly at that mentioning of the beloved dinner, diner, but he was quickly brought back to reality by the smell of hot fudge. There, miraculously, before him, now, was the grandest of hot fudge sundaes, overpowered with whipped cream, studded with chocolate chips and chocolate shavings. He inhaled the sweet smell again before taking a heaping spoonful of the extraordinary dessert. It never ceases to amaze me how the love for ice cream always finds its way here, even in the oldest of souls, said Matthias warmly. Gustafsson, evidently not satisfied with the earlier snack, slowly walked over and began to lick at the white, the whipped cream. Webb made a show of trying to shoo the cat away. Would someone tell me what this giant scavenger is? Gustafsson is one of many Philides, also called Felix by name. Felix is by name. These creatures reside in the Darklands, and they are pretty much the best friends can can you have here, replied Matthias, scratching the Felix's ear. Webb began to ask another question, but what was cut off before he could do so? It is almost six o'clock, Michael, stated Matthias, suddenly rising from his chair. Please make sure that Glorian is locked down. He then turned back to Webb. There will be plenty of time for more questions tomorrow. For now, get a good night's rest. He then silently disappeared into the back of the room with Iggy following close behind. Unlike Mike's, Uncle Mike stood. Let's go, Webb. Webb stuffed one more serving of the sundae in his mouth before following his uncle out of the room, Gustafsson once again at their heels. After walking silently together for a while, turning down various nondescript hallways, Webb cleared his throat. Hey, um, Uncle Mike, Webb hesitated. Hard to say my name, isn't it? The older man laughed. Hard to believe you're conversing with your a dead uncle. You'll become accustomed to it after a short time. None of this will faze you. Webb nodded, not knowing if he really believed that or not. Tell me, he asked, looking down at his uncle's walking cane. He didn't walk with a limp or use a cane, you know, back home, so why now? Some of us reflect more on the inner self than the outer self, revealing the emotional scars you couldn't see. Aunt Kathy Webb and whispered. Yes, he answered with a sad little smile. So there are days and nights here, asked Webb, rapidly changing the subject. He rubbed his neck, feeling guilty about bringing up his aunt. 
Yes, it helps keep the order of things. Gives people a schedule to work by. And what's so special about six o'clock? Uncle Mike looked over at his nephew gravely and then continued to stagger the gate. Not everything here is benevolent. They rounded another indistinguishable stone corner and came upon a giant keyhole. Webb gauged that it had to be at least one foot wide and twice as long. Stranger still was the uh, keyhole was not part of any door. He could see instead it appeared to set into the wall itself. Excuse me for a moment, Webb, pardoned his uncle. Webb watched curiously as he produced a giant burnished black key from a shallow recess within the wall and then inserted it into the keyhole. His uncle turned the enormous key sharply and it stopped with a, an audible click. Immediately a low rumble began to fill the castle, sounding and feeling to Webb as if a freight train were passing through the walls around them. After a minute, the noise and vibration stopped and the halls resumed their stoic silence. Uncle Mike pulled the key out of the strange lock and placed it back into the recess in the wall, where it rested once more. And that's that, declared Uncle Mike. What's what? Gloria is locked down. This has been an episode of the story of Darkland's Requiem. So, really interesting how the author has written this story and told this story about life after death or a portion of that. So, all right, sit back. I'm going to put some music on and then we're going to continue the show briefly.
Well, this has been an episode of Dragon Gray's Variety Show, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring episode. So, hope you've enjoyed it. Come back and listen to the next episode. And being that the holidays season has appeared, we're going to also do uh, from now until January, beginning of January, we're going to do some uh, episodes of Dragon, Dragon Gray's Variety Show Holiday Edition, where we'll do some stories and holiday music. So we hope that your Thanksgiving was great. Take care. And see you, hear from you soon.